This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we watch a new movie and we compare it to older movies that you may or may not have heard about. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer and film blogger. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, an arts reporter at the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. And uh, currently we are broadcasting from the podcast Parrot Palace, as I'm still laid up after an accident. But uh, we're doing our best to bring you the best show that we can. And today we're talking about films with unlikable protagonists. Leads that are pains in the butt, but uh, you're going to love the movies anyway. That's right, the characters you love to hate from the podcast you love to love. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Well, going into our look at characters you love to hate or maybe just uh, hate to love, it's hard to say. It depends. Everyone has a different perspective on some of these films. But we're looking at, at films with, with unlikable leads, and it, there are a whole lot of these. Um, it's, it's, it's not something that was really common in the early days of film. You know, you, you had villains, of course, but they were clearly the villains. Uh, and it, the, the era of the anti-hero, we really don't get into that uh, very deeply until uh, more in the, the days of the Second World War, and it's certainly uh, when film noir really blossoms following the Second World War. Does, really film, see does film noir really blossom, or does it seep in and fester. get into fester into your bones? <laughs> I think that's what happens. That's true. Blossom might be the wrong word. Um, <laughs> you know, like C- Citizen Kane may be the first, like, really early example of this where a whole film centers around a character who is you know pretty venal and despicable by the by the end of it but um you know it certainly makes for a compelling viewing when the the character is constructed properly in the screenplay and then uh is given to a a a bravura kind of no holds barred kind of actor who can really uh take a character like this and swing for the fences and i think that's what we've got in the case of our first film which is the founder it's uh a look at uh you know, it, it, it seems like maybe an unlikely subject for a movie because you might even have seen the poster for this when it was in theaters and now it's on Netflix for everyone's uh, viewing pleasure. But as a look at the uh, the man who took uh, the concept of assembly line hamburgers at uh, a little burger stand in San Bernardino called McDonald's and uh, made it into, uh, you know, the, the icon of fast food that it is today. Uh, directed by John Lee Hancock from a script by Robert D. Siegel. Uh, the film 
really just is completely anchored in his performance by Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc, who was kind of a failed salesman behind many different ventures that went nowhere, who suddenly uh, chances upon the McDonald Brothers hamburger stand and all of a sudden sees the dollar signs in the system that they've invented for uh, rapid fire food service. And Kroc uh, makes a deal with the fairly prickly McDonald Brothers who have... Uh, a real commitment to the craft of, of making hamburgers, even though they make them quickly and uh, uh, on basically on an assembly line, they still have certain uh, commitments to quality and customer service that Ray Kroc uh, quickly sees a way past to increase profits and uh, spread this, uh, this world famous chain around the globe. Uh, and Keaton uh, stops at nothing really to basically uh, take their idea and the name of McDonald's and uh, turn it into his his own creation, as it were. And that's that's why the film's called The Founder. At some point, he starts basically taking credit for the whole concept, and uh, and you know becomes the kind of icon of the uh, of, of the franchise. And this is kind of the first major example of a franchise uh, kind of spreading that way. Because even in those days, like department stores were kind of more regional; uh, they weren't widespread uh, nationwide chains like they are today. And and, uh, and and McDonald's kind of blazed the way for for clothing stores and and uh, you know all all manner of, of uh, sellers of goods and, and services. Uh, you know, not just uh, the fast food industry. And it kind of, I guess, imagines the modern America. You know, a lot of these movies where you you're not really sure whether you're on board with the behavior or the beliefs or the feelings of the uh, the lead character are stories of America. You know, and and I feel like a lot of American um, uh, stories of commerce get you know they get these these kinds of takes in uh, stories certainly stories of ambition in business and we'll see that again and again some of the the movies I went to research are certainly these kinds of stories um, and I think I think the founder is actually quite a political movie in the first two acts it 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 allows the audience to thrill in Ray Kroc sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps individualism clearly he's had some struggles in the past but as he gets his head around what is possible with the McDonald's uh, franchises you know you you can't help but uh, but enjoy some of his fast-talking smarm and I I think uh, I think that uh, Michael Keaton is as good here as he's been in pretty much anything since his sort of night shift Beetlejuice clean and sober <laughs> heyday. Uh, he's so animated in this, and he's very good. And I I think uh, it takes some shots at uh, you know the differences between the classes in the 1950s. Sure. You know, Croc is kind of a you know he, he he's kind of a he considers himself a little working class Joe and he he resents the the country clubbers even though he may want to be one and uh, of course the whole film presents women as kind of uh, trophies for the successful businessman all of that stuff is shown to be the kind of the landscape of the 1950s in America uh, but you know I think it's one of these movies where. You know, if you believe in the free market, you'd probably see the founder as kind of a hero's journey. I, clearly, he is a compromised character, Ray Kroc, but uh, in places, I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm, my politics tend to the left, but I could see how people could see this and go, well, okay, he was an opportunist and he was unlikable and he was even uh, dishonest to his partners, but. Uh, there is something about his journey that uh, allows the audience to make up their mind. And I, I appreciated that. I, I think most people would talk to, and even if you talk to the directors, they'd probably say, uh, well, he was kind of a jerk. <laughs> you know, he is really unlikable, but it's a fascinating story. And I think, I think yeah, it's, it's that American dream, uh, how it 
became sort of connected to the corporate mentality and the kind of world that we live in now. I think this film really does a pretty good job in framing that. Yeah, the the film even includes, at the, at the very end, you get some clips of the real Ray Kroc talking about his vision for the company and, and how, you know, again, just like the, the fictionalized version uh, in the film, uh, you know, takes credit for all the success. And in a way, that's that's his right. He's the one with the, the, the vision beyond just a really efficient burger stand in, uh, in with a couple of locations in S- Southern California. Um, but, uh, you know, even even then you kind of see how maybe his greatest invention was himself in a way that that he transforms himself into this other person by the end of end of the film. And he's he's listening to those kind of self-improvement records, which like, you know, I was really happy to see those in the film because I actually have some copies of of some of these kind of, you know, big become a better salesman kind of like you get these LPs and they give you instructions on how to talk to people and how to, you know, how to sort of pick up on their psychological profile as it were. Like I've got this one telling you uh, how to be a success in life insurance selling. And one of the chapters is break into his mind. And you know, it's like, you know, when you're sitting in somebody's office and you like take note of the pictures of the kids on the desk and try to pick up on the psychological cues that, you know, will kind of ingratiate you towards this person, and and he's done all that stuff. He's really done his his homework in terms of being a salesman, and but you know, in, in, he's also selling himself as well as uh, selling the, the you know the franchise dream, and then you know the the the, the American dream of uh, providing something that everybody wants. Um, it's it's interesting that uh, you know when I, met, I I talked about this film on on Facebook a little bit, and uh, you know you know like I. My feeling was that I felt bad for the McDonald brothers because they kind of got royally screwed. I mean, they, they did get like a lump payment when they finally handed over the keys to the, the whole thing. Yeah, they got some money. But they got the cheated. Deal. You know, they never got their royalties that they were mm-hmm. promised because uh, they did it on a handshake. And, uh, you know, and then someone else said, well, I think the McDonald brothers are the villains of this film because, you know, they, they were standing in his, in the way of progress and, right. and, uh, you know, being unreasonable and, you know, not giving in to powdered milkshakes and all these other things. And it's like, you know, I, you know, the person, you know, the person inside me who likes real milkshakes and likes small town hamburger stands, of course, you know, bristles at the very thought of, of this idea. But, but, it, you know, it is an interesting point to make that, you know, if, if you swing your perspective around to, Croc's vision of building this empire that provides jobs and, and gives its uh, investors a strong return on their dollar and all the things that uh, the free market is designed to do. Um, yeah, I guess I guess from that perspective, they, they'd be right. Um, and, uh, you know, the McDonald brothers just weren't smart enough to kind of protect their, yeah. their end of yeah, things. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, if I really dig down, I think, yeah, all of that is true. I think, though, that if if I really think about it, I think this picture is actually saying that honesty and decency are incompatible with big business. I think that's kind of what it's saying. Uh, and I think that it's, uh, it's maybe saying also that America kind of sold its soul to and its healthy relationship with food and even maybe its government to this corporate mentality uh, that, that puts you know, the American dream out of the reach of most people. But, uh, but yeah, I do appreciate that there are different ways to take it. And, and I like that the film... It leaves a lot of that up to the uh, the audience to decide. Yeah, it's funny watching this made me think of like a film that has yet to be made, which is uh, an honest film about Edison. I would I would love to see someone tackle, and maybe that's more of a miniseries thing. We saw that recent uh, miniseries on um, 
uh, on Einstein that kind of looked into his life and the kind of warts and all look at his career and his genius, but also his kind of kind of shaky personal life. And I thought, you know, like Edison is the kind of the guy who kind of defined the 20th century in a way, you know, between the electric light bulb and motion pictures, you know, both of which he took credit for, but weren't necessarily his to take credit for because he had a whole legion of assistants uh, in his lab in Menlo Park and all that. But I feel that there's a story that, you know, that needs to be retold because all we've got right now is the Spencer Tracy movie where he's kind of a, a hero of progress when in fact, you know, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Well, as a matter of fact, Stephen, I, I am the guy to give you the news. At uh, TIFF this year, actually happening as we record, (laughs) is a film called The Current War. It's about the uh, cutthroat race between electricity titans Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse. Oh, wow. With uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Edison and and Michael Shannon as Westinghouse. Holy Uh, smokes. Also starring Catherine Watterson and uh, Nicholas Holt. So, uh, you know, that could be the movie you're waiting for. I uh, well that that's a dream cast. <laughs> yeah. One thing. Um, yeah. I, Cumberbatch's Edison strikes me as kind of strange, but uh, it is a little strange. You know, I every t- every time he puts on his his American accent, I find it a little strange. That's but. always weird. But I think of Edison as kind of a beefy guy, and that's not exactly uh, Cumberbatch's physical profile. But, no, uh, but but a, a sort of a you know prestige period drama is his profile. So I'm not enough, entirely surprised to see him in in this kind of a movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know we'll how much he looked like Alan Turing either. Well, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but that, that certainly and that's well, that's that's something I've dreamed of for a long time. So it, yeah. it's um it's yeah, because Edison was pushing for direct current and Westinghouse was saying, well, alternating current is is much better. It's much more efficient. Right. You, can, you don't need the big power converters like you would with direct current. It's safer. Uh, you know, in, ter- in terms of like not getting electrocuted by your appliances and 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 so on, and and you know Edison lost that battle. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah, and Tesla is a character in this as well. Oh, of course. Well, yeah. he's 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 always kind of the the fly in Edison's ointment in a lot of different yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have to review that to talk about that when it comes out. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if they do the scene where uh, Edison uh, to show how. A I can't remember if he was showing how alternating current was effective or deadly, and they electro- electrocuted an elephant <laughs> and got it on camera. It's, it's fairly disturbing. Wow. But uh, that's an actual thing that happened in the middle of the, this uh, current war. So, uh, yeah, so be duly warned that you may <laughs> see this scene in the course of yeah. the movie. Hopefully they do it tastefully. I don't know how you can, but that's, yeah. that's an actual thing that happened in the process of this uh, of this. Uh, Long debate between AC and DC, and, uh, and it's not Hell's Bells or uh, you know Back in Black. Uh. Well, maybe you know maybe they'll use some of that on the soundtrack. It seems you know they'll do it on ukuleles and and uh, and, and mandolins. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So yeah, so the founder is a movie which has a very seriously compromised lead. Yes. Uh, uh, character, you know, and I, it's funny how many of these movies that we've watched preparing for this uh, podcast uh, goes. They, it all goes against what they tell you in the screenwriting books. You know, they they say your lead needs to be sympathetic, so you can identify your audience will identify with them and have feelings for them. And uh, and I think, but you know, I think there is actually a difference between unlikable and sympathetic, just as I think there's a difference between unlikable and pitiable. And uh, a lot of these movies kind of cross back and forth over these kind of feelings in terms of what I'm getting out of them, you know, characters who you might not like them, but at least you understand why they're doing something. Uh, or you might like them for a while, then you don't like them. And then you just kind of feel sorry for them. And that's certainly what happens in, uh, Ace in the Hole. 
yes. uh, which is the Billy Wilder film we just watched. Uh, this is one you suggested, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'll just say, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's 1951. Chuck, uh, Chuck Tatum is the character Kirk Douglas plays, and he's a big city newspaper man who's been chased out of about half a dozen reputable news gathering organizations, ends up in Albuquerque, and out in the desert he stumbles across the perfect news story. A guy named Leo, played by Richard Benedict, is stuck in a mine a mine cave-in. Uh, Tatum is able to speak to the guy, he gets the story, and then he orchestrates the entire media circus until the actual carnival shows up. Uh, meanwhile, he gets the uh, crooked sheriff on board for his plan to get attention and hoard the story for himself, and he manipulates Leo's wife, Lorraine, played by Jan Sterling. All part of his plan to get back to New York and be a big deal with the newspaper industry on the coast. Um, you know, soon the local train is dropping off money-spending punters, and the local contractor takes his sweet time trying to get to free the poor guy in the cave, and it all becomes about this this big event around trying to free a man who's uh, who's in some serious trouble. It's a it's a real. I, I felt that noir area more um, uh, morality about it. Oh, for sure. It's it's one of the most darkly cynical pictures of the 1950s. The the only other film that I can think of that comes close, and I'm, I'm you know I'm sure there's lots of others I'm not thinking of, but um, a face in the crowd, the Ilya Kazan film about. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, played by future Matlock uh, Andy Griffith, as kind of a cornball huckster, you know, figure who becomes this massively popular TV star and, and becomes politically influential, but turns out to be completely venal with a with a heart of coal at the at his center. And if you get a chance to see Face in the Crowd, it shows up on TCM quite frequently. In fact, it was on in the past week or so, um, and it's certainly available on disc and in other formats. So. Uh, you know, that's the only other film that comes close to Ace in the Hole. But Ace in the Hole, you know, it's Billy Wilder, um, who is already, you know, at that point, had already given us a string of unlikable characters in things like Double Indemnity and uh, Ray Milland and The Lost Weekend and certainly... Um, Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, which had come out just before this and, in fact, was such a successful film that it gave him the clout to make Ace in the Hole. Paramount basically gave him carte blanche uh, and then the film flopped. And so... You know, thankfully, he, he had another hit immediately after with Stalag 17. But um, after Ace in the Hole, he softens his uh, approach uh, a bit for the next uh, several films. And uh, this is this is definitely unhinged, uh, unfiltered Wilder because he has a fairly pitch black view of humanity that runs throughout his films and in things like The Apartment and and uh, One, Two, Three and... Um, even even if you want to look for it, it's there in Sabrina, which is you know technically a romantic comedy, but there's there's some dark notes in that film. Absolutely, as well. yeah, he's criticizing big business yeah. and and certainly there's a class war in that as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But 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 Ace in the Hole is 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 an astonishing film if you've never seen it. It kind of predicts the internet age of the of these kind of stories that become sensations just overnight. Uh, obviously, in those days, it was through newspapers and the telex machine and, and radio and broadcast. Uh, you know, as opposed, you know, cut to today, and you cut the time that these stories spread by about a tenth. <laughs> and uh, but it's it's still the same kind of idea. It's, it's very forward looking, and um, you know, it was so dark that Paramount kind of re-released it under a different title, hoping people wouldn't notice. They called it the the big carnival for its uh, sort of second run, because of course, uh, you know, the fact that this guy is trapped in a in a cave in uh, New Mexico. Uh, it draws all these onlookers, all these rubberneckers, and then uh, 
carnival rides and a big tent show up and it becomes this big, you know, this big party while this poor dude is trapped, uh, you know, under several feet of rock uh, inside this old uh, New Mexican Pueblo that's uh, collapsing as he's been looking for ancient artifacts. And he's convinced that the spirits uh, have cursed him and uh, want to keep him for themselves, uh, which is a, the spiritual theme that runs through the course of the film is another interesting theme where uh, spiritualism is kind of made fun of. Uh, you know, the classic line from this film, I mean, you laughed when you heard it for the first time, where where Leo's wife says, I don't go to church because praying bags praying bags my nylons. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. There's a lot of good lines in this in this film, for sure. My my favorite is is Lorraine. She says uh, to to Chuck Tatum, Kirk Douglas' character, she says, I met a lot of hard-boiled eggs in my life, but you, you're 20 minutes. <laughs> Oh man, this is it's yeah, it's an endlessly quotable film and and, and Douglas gives one of those kind of wild-eyed uh, you know, swing for the fences kind of performances. You'd see it again in in things like um well certainly Spartacus and and Paths of Glory, his film his other film with um with Stanley Kubrick and it's the kind of role that he you know, he, he's certainly a you know, a scenery tour of sorts, but you know, when the roles are kind of tailor-made for him, he, he really gives it all. He, he must have had a lot of confidence in his career at this point because he's playing, it's so unlikable. He's really risking that his audience will just like hate him as a leading character in this. And I, I gotta give him credit for knowing, being able to recognize the quality scripts and the quality movies and even, you know, risk his matinee idol uh, stature for taking these kinds of uh, kinds of parts, yeah, it's you know, and, and eventually he'd go on to produce his own movies and still you know look for projects that where he could play a character that wasn't maybe the sweetest guy in the world. But but that was kind of that was kind of his personality anyway. Like he's, he's Kirk Douglas is so much better playing a heel than, than he is <laughs> a flat out hero. And uh, even if you look at him in, in things like the the film noir out of the past and so on. Um, and this is an interesting film too from, from Wilder's perspective. Uh, through the 40s, he'd kind of, and right up to Sunset Boulevard, he'd worked with a writer named Lee Brackett, was kind of his collaborator. And this was like his first film without Lee Brackett. And so he was kind of cut adrift a little bit um, with this film. And I think in this one, he I think he had full reign with the screenplay as opposed to a writer of equal status to kind of bounce things off of. So I think this is why this stands out in his filmography because it's it's fairly unfiltered, wilder. And, uh, and you know, I think Paramount, somehow got him to scale it back for his next few films. And then somehow he, he finds another um, writer partner named I.A.L. Diamond um, a little later on, I think maybe it was some like it's hot, where he's able to kind of find that balance again and, uh, you know, and twist, make things a little darker, but still having that the twinkle in its eye kind of thing. So he, he's, he's a little bit adrift through the middle of the 50s um, in terms of pure wilderness but but this film is completely uh com- completely uncut as it were and it doesn't hold back and you know it has a lot to say about the media it has a lot of, to say about the gullibility and and venalness of the public that eats it up it's kind of like you know a 50-year anticipation of, of tmz and that generation yeah absolutely uh yeah the media does not get out very well after this film but also it's another character who's looking to get big get famous get rich and uh you, you know, there, certainly that theme comes again and again to to American films. Uh, Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, uh, P.T. Anderson's There Will Be Blood. I think these movies are all kind of of a of a style. They're all about that that ambition, that un, 
untrammeled uh, American just kind of uh, nastiness that can come up when when uh, there there are no regulations. You just go for it, and who knows what might happen, the, the good and the bad. Yeah, and here, uh, like, even when you think that maybe he'll grow a soul and a heart at some point, it's even when he does show some actual concern for the guy who's stuck in, in the hole, for Leo, um, even then, it's just because his story will have a better ending if he survives the ordeal. Not, He's not worried about him dying because he's befriended this guy and, and he feels something, uh, some compassion for him. He's just worried that if he dies, his story doesn't have the, the, the right ending. And it just they just don't let up <laughs> the, the, right until the very final shot. Like, the, 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 the film is unrelenting. Uh, and, and, of course, people didn't really enjoy that at the time that this came out. And, that, and now we've seen so many more examples of this kind of character. You just kind of enjoy the ride. And like, like you say, like now they tell people, well, your lead needs to be likable and all that kind of thing. But, of course, those are exactly the kind of rules that need to be broken. I mean, Billy Wilder didn't like to play by any rules. You know, he liked to, to break all the cliches in half and, and kind of just stamp right through them. Um, I, I can really recommend one, two, three. Um, his kind of riotous comedy about uh, a Coca-Cola executive in, in West Berlin. As the, as the wall is going up, um, uh, James Cagney just gives his tour de force, like breathtaking performances, the Coca-Cola executive who's trying to, you know, get his big promotion and meanwhile, you know, the president's daughter is visiting and she disappears into East Berlin and marries a Bolshevik. And he's, you know, so he's trying to coordinate that for all it's worth. Uh, he doesn't care about their happiness in particular or, or her safety or anything like that as long as he can get that big promotion to the uh, to the global office in London. And it, it just has this pell-mell momentum uh, right up until the very end of it. You know, there's a, some crazy chase scenes in the middle of it. And uh, the dialogue, you know, just the, the political barbs are just flying fast and furious um and this is kind of the same tone uh it doesn't quite have the same pacing as one two three one two three you're almost exhausted by the end of it but it's, it's worth it here it's the slow build towards you know what 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 you hope doesn't happen at the end and uh and kirk is basically his performance is controlling the pacing every step of the way so uh one of the movies that came to mind and even though I have to say I'm sad to say I haven't seen it and wasn't able to see it in advance of our recording but uh, I know it features one of the great unlikable leads lead performances uh, and that's King of Comedy Scorsese's uh, story about Rupert Pupkin uh, the uh, Robert De Niro plays opposite Jerry Lewis the uh, sadly departed recently sadly departed Jerry Lewis I know you watched it just uh, was today or, or yeah, yesterday just this morning I threw it on I've, I've seen it a number of times in the so, past but I just thought I'd put it on and I was just gonna kind of skim through it in the end I just watched it from start to finish it's it's such a watchable film and it's one that uh, you know I, I think diehard Scorsese fans will will have a fondness for this. Uh, you know, people often don't think of this um, too often when they think of the Scorsese uh, canon, as it were. Uh, After Hours, his other comedy. I mean, you know, comedy isn't really his forte uh, necessarily, but the couple that he made are actually pretty good and uh, definitely worth revisiting. Uh, and and this is definitely a comedy, but it does get pretty dark. Um, Rupert Pupkin is uh, a brilliant De Niro performance. Um, it's it's very oddly it's almost like the flip side of taxi driver it's 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 he's not that far from travis bickle um except instead of a cab driver he's a wannabe comedian um and we'll just maybe forget that that other uh, 
De Niro film called The Comedian uh, actually exists because this is the real De Niro comedian performance, except he's not a comedian. He just, just in his own mind, he is. Um, and he's obsessed with a talk show host played by Jerry Lewis uh, named Jerry Langford, who is pretty much exactly the way you'd expect an off-camera Jerry Lewis to be. Like, it, it almost feels like Jerry Lewis is just playing himself, which isn't necessarily true, but the way, you know, the way he talks to Rupert about the business of show and, and, and how to be funny and all that stuff, it, it, it's very close to uh, interviews I've seen with Jerry Lewis. The, that, uh, the, the script by uh, Paul Zimmerman, uh, I think they, they must have spent a lot of time with Lewis or watching him be interviewed and, and getting down his, his real kind of persona as opposed to the wacky, hey, lady guy of, of, that everyone knows from film. I mean, Jerry Lewis has, has gone through a bunch of different personas over the years. I mean, most people, you know, they, they think of the Nutty Professor and those films with, uh, with Dean Martin and so on. Um, and, but here he's, he's, he's very serious. He doesn't really crack any jokes. He doesn't rely on any old shtick. Um, you never see him kind of falling back on some of his trademark funny bits. Um, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's a remarkable performance. Uh, Oddly enough, uh, shortly after Jerry Lewis passed away, I dug out a DVD I have of a talk show that he actually hosted. Like, he actually hosted his own talk show in the early 60s. And uh, I think it was ABC. I could have that wrong. Um, the network, anyway, put, put a ton of money into this. It was going to be like the big, splashy debut of, of that year. I think it was in 63. And, um, you know, they, they refurbished a studio in Los Angeles. They put his face on every door, on every door handle, probably on the toilet paper. <laughs> you know, on the floor, like it was, it was going to be the big thing. And it immediately bombed because, uh, audiences weren't used to seeing Jerry just be himself. You know, they were used to the kid, uh, you know, the, the, the stumbling idiot of the movies, as it were, you know, the, the, the stooge to, to Dean Martin and, and kind of the, the ever, you know, the eternal adolescence of his solo films. And, um, so Jerry being sincere and, or, Jerry sincere, which is maybe not completely realistically sincere, uh, and, and interviewing people and just being himself was, was not something that people caught into. They didn't warm to it. And, um, they, uh, they, they tried to cancel it, but he held them to the contract that he would at least get to finish out the first half of the season. So the show that I saw actually is after the cancellation has been announced. So it's almost like a funeral. <laughs> You know, like he's doing the show. He's got some great guests, uh, Muhammad Ali, or sorry, Cassius Clay, I should say, and uh, and Sam Cooker among the guests on the show. Um, and uh, but it's it's got this weird Paul because he talks about being canceled and he makes jokes, some some pretty grim jokes about the fact that the show won't be on the air come the new year. It's almost Christmas at this point. Um, the audience doesn't laugh a whole lot, uh, even you know when he cracks jokes and so on, and that vibe carries over to Jerry Langford and King of Comedy. So, you know, it's, and, and De Niro's kind of obsessed with them. He's built a little set in his basement uh, with the cardboard cutout of, uh, of Jerry Langford, the Lewis character on one side, and uh, any number of cardboard special guests in the other seat. Uh, in one scene, it's Liza Minnelli, which is kind of funny because Scorsese and Liza Minnelli, of course, uh, were involved while they were making the musical New York, New York with De Niro. So it was kind of, that was kind of a nice little nod for, for Scorsese fans to see Liza Minnelli turn up in cardboard form in King of Comedy. 
And uh, all he wants to do is get a chance to be on Jerry's show and do some comedy and get his name out there. You know, he doesn't, he's not doing the comedy clubs. He's not actually doing the work, which Jerry Lewis tells him to do. Talk, he talks about, you know, you got to start at the bottom and all this in, the, in one of their encounters. And, but in the meantime, Pupkin has all these fantasy sequences built up and it's like he imagines himself being on the show and talking to Jerry and there are moments in the film where you're not sure if what you're seeing is real or not and um, Pupkin's obnoxious uh, you know uh, ostentatiousness uh, maybe that's not the word I'm looking for but he's very obstinate in, in trying to get on the show he's always trying to get past the receptionist at the studio and uh, eventually he teams up with another mega fan who's even more unbalanced played by the, the great Sarah Bernhardt um, or Sandra Bernhardt and uh, they uh, they basically kidnap Jerry Langford and hold him for ransom. And that ransom is allowing Pupkin to uh, come on the show and do his bit, uh, even though he knows he's going to be arrested when the show is over. Um, and I'm not going to say how things work out after that, but it, uh, you know, it has, you know, the, maybe the ending is, is one of the, the not so strong parts of the film. But uh, but watching him play this character is, is quite something as he kind of just trying to trying to muscles way into fame as it were but it does you know like ace in the hole it does kind of anticipate that kind of instant celebrity mm -hmm. and, and how people become famous maybe not for being talented but just for being famous or somehow being able to make themselves famous as opposed to having some value in them that makes them uh, worthy of you know being noticed and, and being celebrated uh so in that way the film is very prescient uh it's, it's unfortunate that that became the trend. Yeah, but, uh, it is. But it is kind of spooky watching this film and see, uh, watching uh, watching King of Comedy and seeing how it uh, fairly accurately portrays how things are going to go a few years down the road. I think it's interesting how Scorsese's, a lot of his films, didn't have a lot of, if I think about his body work, there aren't a lot of really lovable characters in <laughs> no. his films. Uh, you know, and I think about uh, uh, some of the other big filmmakers of our era. Uh, Kubrick had the same same thing. I'm trying to remember, think of how many of characters in his movies you'd consider really sympathetic, someone you'd really, like even heroic. There aren't there aren't a lot of heroic characters. Um, yeah, certainly not uh, Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut or Barry Lyndon. No, no, he certainly. He his way through a series of misadventures. Alex and Clockwork Orange. Uh, I mean, there's a, but yet at the same time, you can't help but be fascinated by their their journey, whatever they've got going on. Um, and I, I also realized another genre that uh, tends to have a fair amount of troubled protagonists uh, is the biopic. Of I course, mean, yeah. you know, if bringing back to Scorsese, Raging Bull, I mean, Jake LaMotta maybe is absolutely loathsome in that film, but it's still considered a great picture. You can't help but be hypnotized by it. And that's partly due to Scorsese's you know, gorgeous way around uh, assembling a scene and and sh help you know shooting it, but uh, but you you I think I think that's the question that you ask at the end is whether or not you feel you feel empathetic or you feel like the time you spent with those characters did you learn something either about them or about yourself? Um, I. Uh, was sort of as I was going through this, I realized that that uh, there are two films by uh, that were written by Aaron Sorkin, that uh, a, a filmmaker and a writer whose work I've admired back to uh, the West Wing, um, and one of them I really liked, and one of them I don't like at all, and both of them have 
unappealing protagonists. Uh, the first one is a social network about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and how it was, I mean, a fictionalized take on how Facebook was created. Now, there's a movie I really enjoy. I, I enjoy the way it's directed. Um, uh, David Fincher, I, I really love the writing in the film. And I like how Eisenberg, who played, Jesse Eisenberg, who played Mark Zuckerberg, he, he is both the villain and the hero in this story. And he, it depends on who's, who he's in the scene with, whether you sympathize with him or not. He treats people terribly, but at the same time, he is the underdog for most of the film, and he's created a, uh, a, a, the social network. I mean, he created Facebook, which most of us use and every day. So there's a certain... There's a certain, you can't help but be kind of amazed at what he was able to achieve, even when he is smug and self-righteous and obnoxious. And then I went and saw Steve Jobs, which is another biopic directed by Danny Boyle this time, another filmmaker who I really enjoy. Uh, And uh, it, it stars Michael Fassbender as the eponymous genius, and it takes place over three different uh, launches, product launches. And here was a case where... Uh, the strange thing is, is that I feel like the filmmakers wanted us to sympathize and empathize with him, and I didn't at all, and I didn't care. And I, I felt like in, in the Steve Jobs movie, the fact that he was the inventor of Apple and all these devices we, we, uh, uh, we use is, is being used as a, uh, is our shorthand to caring about him, where I didn't. I, it wasn't enough. I don't care who invented all that. Like, I need to feel engaged by the character. And really, it's a story of a man discovering that he's not a very good father, and it takes yeah. him, like, 13 years to figure it out. <laughs> where, a jerk to his daughter. Yeah, yeah. whereas, um, you know, in Social Network, Zuckerberg is, is the underdog. He's treated badly. He treats other people badly, but he invents something that allows him to achieve something very unusual in our society and you can't help but be kind of in awe of that. So, there's something about it and about the character and the way that the film is written where you do you are engaged. Yeah, there's a little more dimension to Zuckerberg in the social network than I think there is in, in Steve Jobs. Yeah, there is, absolutely. So anyway, I just in terms of, of uh, fictionalized biopics and uh, it's funny how I like to parallel those two and I, I don't know necessarily I can say what really went wrong with Steve Jobs but I know that I walked out of it going... Who cares about that guy? Uh, whereas, at least with with the social network, there was something there for me to feel feel for. Yeah, because by all account, any anybody who's had any interaction with Jobs, you know, describes him as being very magnetic and charismatic, and and having that kind of laser sharp intensity, and and being, you know, a fascinating guy. And somehow the film lost that somewhere along the way. Well, apart from a couple of nods to Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity and maybe uh, maybe poor old Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard, most of these films that we've been talking about in depth, anyway, have dealt with, for the most part, male protagonists. Uh, and uh, we feel that maybe the scales need to be balanced a little bit, that, uh, that these kind of characters can come from anywhere. And that uh, there are some uh, there are some notable films with, with female leads who also kind of walk that line between you know, compelling, but maybe unlikable, or maybe with certain traits that uh, that make them not not someone you'd want to spend any time with outside of the the ninety minutes to uh, to two hours that you spend with them in the course of this film. And of course, uh, you know, it still makes for great films and and for memorable characters. And uh, there, there's just as many that we want to talk about uh, from that side of things. And uh, let's uh, maybe talk about uh, a relatively new film called Ingrid Goes West that uh, just uh, just left our local theaters. It may still be playing somewhere near you if you're listening to this uh, in, in the next little while. And 
it's a, it's a fascinating study of a, of a woman who's completely absorbed in other people's lives through the internet. Uh, Aubrey Plaza plays a, plays a young woman who's completely focused on other people's lives through Instagram and Facebook and so on. And, and she becomes enamored of a, of a photographer slash artist in Los Angeles um, played by Elizabeth Olsen. And, uh, you know, when, when one of her internet so-called friendships goes sour, she makes uh, a pilgrimage to Los Angeles to start a new life and uh, inject herself into the life of, uh, of this artist played by Olsen. And uh, it goes pretty well for a while. It's, it's amazing how well her plan goes, but at that moment when you're kind of sitting in your seat and cringing and saying, okay, now back off a little bit. You're, you're, you're friends now. You don't have to be quite so weird about all of this. Uh, it just all goes to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, you know, you, it, so you have that weird f- mixture of, 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 of sympathy and empathy, but also a revulsion at the same time. And it's, that's what makes for that, that great seesaw ride through this entire film. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think a lot of these movies where, the protagonist does things that maybe you're not going to be on board with really demands that the performances are right on the money yeah. and uh, huge props to Aubrey Plaza she's so good in this she really does walk that fine line between you know you you we are sort of equally horrified of her and terrified of her and then concerned for her we we you know you don't you really, as we spend all this time with her, you don't want to see her fail. You don't want to see her things go wrong, but you have a feeling that it's going to happen. I mean, it just, it really, she, she's heading for disaster at every moment. And, uh, and it's really interesting how, how the film plays all this out with, uh, as she gets involved in uh, Elizabeth Olsen's character's uh, life. And, uh, and the Olsen character, you know, is, she's a very attractive presence, so I don't think you necessarily notice her narcissism <laughs> quite as much as you do as you start to go along, you start to realize. Um, yeah, I really liked in- Ingrid Goes West. I think, um, I think, it, it, I think it, it could go, it could have gone a lot darker towards the end. I think in some ways it takes an easy way out, but... Uh, but it's not a horror movie. It is. It is by most. I think you could describe it largely as a comedy. Uh, but yeah, big props to Plaza. She's amazing in it. Yeah, I think given what we go through uh, for much of the middle part of the film, I think I need to kind of reel us back in for the, for the ending. But it, you're right. It could have gone completely into a into the deep dark well of despair. And uh, it, uh, you know, we we do get some of that, but. Uh, I think I think uh, if it wasn't for uh, some sort of catharsis at the end, it could have been a real dark ride. And you know, maybe if it had been a European film, it would have totally just gone straight into blackness. But yeah. uh, but in this case, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a grace note at the end, and um, you know, and certainly uh, with uh, two appealing actors like uh, Elizabeth Olsen and uh, and Aubrey Plaza, we're kind of grateful for that. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, as I was saying about. Uh, great performers and magnetic performers, and you were mentioning European films. Uh, a couple of movies I can think of where the performers really carry it. Uh, one is Mike Lee's Naked, his film from 1993 that introduced the world to the, largely to the talented uh, David Thewlis. He plays Johnny, a fast-talking conspiracy theorist, intellectual, who also is very abusive to the female characters in the film. Uh, and it really shows England's seedy underbelly. I, it's one of those movies I think almost should come with a trigger warning because it is really ugly in places. But uh, but Thewlis is so charismatic that you almost give him the benefit of the doubt sometimes. Uh, and then there's Bronson, uh, Tom Hardy, 
gets one of his great roles in Nicholas Winding Refn's brutal portrait of the worst inmate in British penal history. <laughs> I remember watching it first and going, why would they bother making a movie about this guy? Because he's so awful and he's so loathsome. But uh, there is something here about celebrity and about wanting all the attention and about what some people are willing to do in order to get attention. Um, and in that regard, I should uh, steer us back to films with female leads. Although, although Bronson does remind me of Chopper, the Australian film oh, yes. about an inverted Australian outlaw played by Eric Bana who bulked up and got the handlebar mustache and everything like that. It's, it, that would actually be a really good double feature, Bronson and Chopper. Just two right. great titles, very terse <laughs> titled <laughs> films about um, hopeless uh, criminals who somehow become celebrities. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah, to to focus uh, in, at the full end, circle. fully circle back to <laughs> to to movies with, with female protagonists. Uh, we got to mention Young Adults. This is Jason Reitman film uh, written by Diablo Cody, uh, Academy Award winning screenwriter about a woman who uh, it's it's kind of a high school reunion movie about a woman <laughs> who comes back to her town and is. Uh, was a mean girl as a teen and is still miserable 20 years later, even though by many societal standards is a success. And and Charlize Theron plays an amazing part here as someone who uh, is really goes from beginning to end without uh, much of a change. She just she doubles down on her own issues. Uh, it might be considered a dark comedy if there were any laughs, but there are precious few. It's uh, she's a borderline sociopath and she's dangerous and. It, there's, I guess, a sort of rubbernecking quality of pleasure to be taken from young adults uh, in that that dynamite script and that performance is really something. Yeah, it's just watching her go into that spiral. It, there's there's always something about the, watching a character return to their hometown after they've had some success. We, weirdly, I've been listening to a podcast about Gene Seberg, who uh, you know was an act, actor came from you know small town Iowa and, and you know ended up becoming a an international star through Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless and then became involved with the Black Panthers and became a very vocal activist, but also suffered from some mental illness that uh, inevitably caused her downward spiral. And I, I feel like this is, uh, but she was always thinking about the, the folks back home in Iowa and what they might think of, you know, her having these scandalous affairs and so on like that. And, and just that, that weird uh, dichotomy between being the girl next door and being a, you know, a radical um, libertine, and in a way, this this kind of matches that kind of career path. This, you know, she has some serious problems in young adult, and and you know, is not really ready to confront any of it, uh, and and just watching her come up against her past and and uh, having it thrown back on her face is, you know, you don't know where it's going to go or where it's going to wind up, and and um, you know, the, I mean, there are some sympathetic moments. I think of her her scenes with uh, I think it's Patton Oswalt yeah absolutely um, you know that, that do give the film a bit of warmth uh, and you kind of need to have some in there but but there's a lot of uh, chilly stuff around it and I also credit this film with giving me the phrase of the Kentucky Hut <laughs> <laughs> you know when you see a Kentucky Fried Chicken a Taco Bell and a Pizza Hut all in the same building uh, unfortunately we only have a Kentaco. We don't have the hut part. Yeah, and that's the, right. <laughs> on, the, on Spring Garden Road. But, uh, oh no, they took the taco away. So I guess it's. Uh, it's is, a, it, is it over on Quinpool now? Yeah, on Quinpool. They took the Taco Bell part yeah. out. So now it's a Kin Pizza. Or, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's got chicken. Anyway, I just went down a rabbit hole there. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Young Adult is a film I, I've, I've been wanting to revisit it. I haven't really seen it since it came out. Uh, and that's, that's one I'd 
need to put into the revisit pile for sure. Well, that's the that's the thing about some of these movies is that sometimes you don't want to revisit these characters. Well, that's true is, too. Is because it's a it's a tough a tough sit through. Um, now, I, I in that category, I'd put Morvern Caller. This is Lynn Ramsey's film uh, about an insular Scots girl who wakes up one morning to find her boyfriend dead by his own hand, having finished the writing of a novel. In his suicide note, he urges her to have it published, which she does, but under her own name. The title of the movie is her name, Morvan Caller. Uh, Lynn Ramsey does uh, a great job here, uh, and Samantha Morton, who is the lead, she's really good in the lead. Uh, this is there, there's a, it's a dark, gloomy European film, and uh, a lot of the time, I think you spend trying to figure out what is her motivation because Caller doesn't say much, and uh, you know you wonder. I mean, I think it asks us whether we might do the same given that position of of having someone commit suicide, which is, you know, at the end of the day, a really selfish act. Uh, and then she, but she has the presence of mind to turn it into her own advantage. And, uh, you know, that's, that's it something. It some doing. <laughs> it takes some doing, but uh, it's a, yeah, it's about decay and about opportunism. Uh, and uh, speaking of opportunism, the last film that I have on my list is Election from 1999. This is uh, the film that made Reese Witherspoon, I think. Uh, it's Alexander Payne's story of uh, a student council election in a high school in Omaha, Nebraska. And it's about the ambitious Tracy Flick, played by Witherspoon, who's running for president. It isn't a teen movie, really, by that <laughs> genre's typical manifestations. Uh, it's about her, and it's about her relationship with her teacher, Jim, played by Matthew Broderick. And uh, he knows that a, a colleague had an affair with Tracy that cost him his career and his marriage. Um, but, you know, no, nothing really happened to Tracy. And she wants to be president, and uh, Jim hates her. So he sort of supports the candidacy of uh, some opposition, a, a popular uh, an athlete. Uh, and things go badly. They go really, <laughs> really badly for everybody. Uh, and it's, it's funny, you know, when I first watched Election years ago, I really disliked Tracy Flick to an extreme. I think to the, maybe because she reminded me of some of the girls I was in high school with, and um, uh, you know, and I I think it's affected the way I've seen Reese Witherspoon in in roles since. I've seen that Tracy Flick esque quality in other films, and I've I've it's affected the way I appreciate her as an actor. But really, she does a terrific job here. She's yes, so she's convincing. Fantastic. She's fantastic, um, and it's funny because opposite Matthew Broderick, who was a teen actor and was so charismatic in Ferris Bueller and in other films in, as a teenager, and then as an adult, he has tended to play more sort of slubby, more uh, you know conflicted, difficult characters. And it's it's great to see the two of them together in this, uh, but. I, I watching it again, I really felt more sympathy for her this time out. Yeah, seeing Election for the first time, I think you just kind of judge Tracy based on her actions and maybe, uh, and maybe more of the surface stuff. And uh, th there's a, but there's a real soul to the character that that may not come through the first time you, you watch the film. And and, and Payne is so good at at creating these characters. Uh, I think I think Citizen Ruth was one uh, that came up before this with the fabulous Laura Dern performance, and where she's kind of abrasive but has a good heart and you and you know you kind of feel for her eventually and i think uh reese witherspoon has that tracy flick hard shell down so pat that it, you have to really really pay close attention to get at the the heart of that character um and it makes re revisiting it worthwhile i i kind of like to think too that uh, matthew broderick's uh, character might be a variation on a grown-up ferris bueller that you know that maybe the events of ferris bueller's day off were like his only 
shining moment, and then after that, his life just went totally downhill. <laughs> you know what? I could be. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past that. That's a possibility. That was like the greatest day of his life. Yeah, exactly. And then everything. You know, eventually he just became a teacher, just like the teachers that he hated in school. And, and then he meets this uh, insufferable young woman who, who's maybe even worse than he was at that age. So. Um, that's just in my mind. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, to be honest. If I, you know, it's just, I, I kind of want to slap him. Yeah, um, well, did you ever read the uh, Time Out magazine? had a review, and, it's, uh, and it basically ended with, too bad that guy didn't get strangled or throttled <laughs> by the end. Yeah, you know, we, you asked about characters where, or films where the character is so overbearing or whatever. Because like, you're supposed to like him, I think. I think yeah. like John Hughes' Heart of Hearts, you're supposed to be on Ferris's side, mm-hmm. and I was not. <laughs> at any point during that film he just, he just makes life miserable for everybody around him I guess maybe he thought he was like a real life Bugs Bunny or something like that because Bugs kind of does the same thing but it's like well no that's not Elmer Fudd it's a real you know three dimensional character whose life he's kind of ruining uh, on the other, you know on the other side of his uh, his antics so um yeah, I kind of like to think that maybe he didn't have such a great life after the events of that film were over, uh, and that uh-huh. maybe maybe election is is kind of the the dream uh, realization of, of that for me. But um, but but certainly uh, cer- certainly Witherspoon kind of steals the film. You know, like I think of those cupcakes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> quite often. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and how, how brilliant a gag that is. Uh, so yeah, very very darkly funny, but also. You know, also some other emotions being brought into play throughout the film, which is, of course, the the mark of a good Alexander Payne movie. Well, that about wraps up our look at films with characters that uh, either you love to hate or maybe hate to hate or uh, hate the fact that maybe you love them. I'm not sure. Uh, You know, I I certainly have a long track record of liking films with characters that, uh, that aren't all sunshine and roses. Of course, my favorite movie of all time is Treasure of the Sierra Madre, as we've talked about. And uh, its main character, Fred Z. Dobbs, becomes, he starts out as a hero, and by the end of the film, he's a complete villain and, and has to be done away with for the rest of our characters to make it out alive. So um, maybe that is what set me down the path of liking these kinds of films, I guess. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this look at these movies and these characters, and we'll uh, go out and seek out some films maybe you haven't seen before. Um, my name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I just want to say that uh, this show is dedicated to uh, our late lamented feathered friend Zuzu, who you probably heard peeping away on our last podcast. Well, sadly, he passed away in the interim between uh, that show and this show, and we miss him very much. Uh, we still have Corey and Alfie in the background of this show, so hopefully you enjoy their little interjections. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. And, of course, uh, you can reach us uh, through email at podcast at gmail.com and uh, also on uh, Twitter at, I believe, at LendsMeYourEars. And I am on Twitter as well. Uh, I am uh, on Twitter under the name of my blog, which is at Flaw in the Iris. And if you feel like supporting the show, we do have a Patreon. You can send uh, a few dollars our way that way. And, um, of course, if, uh, if you're tuning in for the first time, you can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and other places that find podcasts dwell. Uh, once again, thanks to the folks at Village Soundcast Network for putting the finishing touches on the show, CKDU 88.1 FM for airing us every other Tuesday, and, of course, you, the listener, for making it all possible. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. 
Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.